Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Bristol. I am a host on the channel. Today, we'll be speaking with Professor James Holmes about his book, A Brief Guide to Maritime Strategy. A Brief Guide is a readable introduction to the world of maritime strategy. While he bases his narratives on the writings of Mahan and Corbett, Professor Holmes weaves in a wide range of maritime, political, and philosophical thinkers to describe the importance of maritime strategy for His book guides junior officers and sailors in the art of strategic thinking and action. Professor Holmes outlines the global importance of maritime strategy, emphasizing how it supports all of a nation's endeavors, not just during war, but especially at peace. It forms an indispensable introduction to naval essentials and serves as a companion to more contemporary writers like Jeffrey Till and Wayne Hughes. In in this discussion, Professor Holmes and I cover a variety of topics, including the interaction between maritime strategy and culture, the importance of naval strategy for the peacetime world, China's naval development and strategic needs, as well as how naval strategy differs from and overlaps with the land domain. Thank you, Professor Holmes, for joining us today on the New Books Network. Uh, How are things up in Rhode Island? Oh, things are fine up in Rhode Island for the most part. I mean, given that it's uh, it's obviously an unusual year that, uh, that that is dragging out, uh, we got a nice, we got a nice little blanket of snow on the on the ground, which is which is always nice. And uh, we are still mostly virtual at work at work. So, uh, so like everybody else, we are camping out at home and uh, doing things from the living room. I'm sure all the students love not having to press, dry clean, or iron their uniforms. Well, I mean, it's a sort of yes and no. I, I think that's I think that's probably one one upside. But uh, the fact that the fact that is that a lot of the students have been here. We're going into the last uh, trimester, and they've not, and many of them have not been on campus, which is makes which makes it very difficult, uh, especially for our international students who have come uh, from great distances to, co- to 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 attend the War College and have not uh, have not been able to actually do do anything face to face with their with their with their colleagues or their faculty or anybody else. Yeah, it's a real shame. I know a lot of the War College experience is also networking and, you know, your, your fellow officers. So, uh, yeah, especially in your service to international guys. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we've, I think we've gotten good at using Zoom and other, and other platforms like that to, to have seminars, but you, you just can't replace the dynamism that, uh, that happens in the classroom. I mean, I'm a, uh, when, when, when I, when I'm running a seminar, I do, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a scribbler. I, 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 I write on the, right on the board. Pretty much, uh, pretty much nonstop, and try to make connections and so forth. And, and there's, there's just no way to replace that. Plus, just not having face-to-face contact is just, it just takes something away. Absolutely, absolutely. But hopefully, it makes uh, the writing process all the more important. So, uh, without further ado, I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about the book. So, um, I know you, you present this as a primer on maritime strategy. So, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that, and what are some, what were some of your objectives in writing the book? Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, it's, it's I, in the foreword. I actually set it up to explain the logic of what I'm all about. I've I've, I've sort of made it my mission to try to to try to train uh, well midshipmen, newly commissioned officers, people who are very junior at the outset of their careers 
to try to acquaint them though with the with the basics of maritime strategy. We find that we find that uh, officers will show up at the War College at mid career, either uh, either as lieutenant commanders, sort of mid grade, or 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 even more senior officers, without without really ever having studied maritime strategy. And in uh, different accession programs, whether it's OCS, but especially the the ROTC programs or the Naval Academy, they get they get a they get a decent dose of maritime history, U.S. naval history, but they don't actually they don't actually study the classics. And and I'm obviously as a teacher in the strategy and policy department, a true believer in the value of strategic theory. So the, the so the the basic idea is to to set them up and start start acquainting them with these uh, these masters of strategy very early on. Not, not only so, so to, to help them get a get a, a jump ahead on their education but also just to help them make sense of what they do on a daily basis I, I represent the book in the forward as, as a as a letter to my previous self to myself 30 years ago when I was a junior officer and wondered about wondered about why we were doing things like uh, giving ship tours or having congressional delegations on board or, or whatever the case may be these are things that are not only valuable but they're actually diplomatically valuable. Often you have to maintain uh, decent relationships with lawmakers, with foreign uh, partners and, and, and friends and so forth. So there's actually, a, there's actually a lot to what we do on a daily basis. And the book tries to help, uh, tries to help uh, the junior officers make sense of it. Yeah, well, and, that, and that's great. You know, it's also continuing a, a tradition of the Navy War College. I think of all the war colleges, it has the reputation as being the uh, uh, historically, at least the most strategically oriented and maybe, uh, maybe the most intellectual, if I can say that as a, uh, as a fellow uh, Navy officer myself, um, so it's, it's great to hear that tradition is continuing over. Yeah, well, I mean, that's obvious. That's obvious. What we what we think we do have that reputation, and I, I actually believe it's warranted. Although it's a although it's it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard without spending time at the other World War colleges to to hold forth too confidently, just because I haven't uh, been there and worked and worked in those departments and, and dealt with their students. I will say that I, I will say that. Uh, when people are when people are thinking about the war college, it's not it is the naval war college, but we have a very joint a very joint student body. Uh, generally speaking, sort of roughly speaking, in a seminar of uh, of twelve, which is usually about what they are, usually about half the naval officers or half the half of that twelve is naval officers. But you're always going to have a marine, you're always going to have an at least one army officer, usually more an air force officer, and then uh, and then two or three uh, international officers. So it's so it's a, you're talking about a very cosmopolitan group. Yes, yes, we're the Naval War College, but we also are a very joint school as well. Oh, that's, yeah, that's great. That's great. So, you know, getting to the book, I, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I think you, you accomplish, uh, accomplish a good goal here, and it's a great introduction. It's uh, very tight, um, which makes it easy to handle, and it's pretty minimalistic. I, you know, it's divided into three parts. So I found that it kind of struck me, that organization, while I was reading it. So what was kind of, what was your thinking in terms of writing it, and, you know, why did you... Uh, why, why? Why did you have this particular organization that you, that you did? Well, you know, you know, uh, one time uh, President Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, was asked uh, how long a man's legs needed to be, and he, he said long enough to reach the ground. I, I, I didn't, I didn't go into it. In fact, I very seldom these days. Uh, I, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of writing, not just books, but a lot of uh, short, a lot of short pieces, and, and a lot of times I don't even uh, don't even start with an outline. I just sit down and start to, and start writing. And the and whatever the piece of writing is uh, actually writes itself. I think I was a little bit more regimented uh, when, when when I go into a book project, but at the same time, but at the same time, it's I didn't I didn't have some sort of master plan. There's no there's no there's no really there's nothing really uh, hidden in the in the structure of the book that uh, that explains its that explains its logic. I just basically I just basically go through it in, in the order that seemed best to me. What is what is the C 
I start off by talking by defining what the, what the C is, reaching back to reaching back to Mahan's ideas that the, the C is a uh, it's a wide thoroughfare. It's a, it's, a, it's a nautical highway that we can all use to carry on commerce, which he which he depicts as the as the chief purpose of maritime strategy, but also do military stuff such as we're familiar with uh, not only in not only in wartime, obviously fighting for command of the sea, but also. Uh, uh, responding to humanitarian disasters in peacetime, doing all the doing all the, these things that navies do when they're when they're not actually uh, engaged in fighting. So I start I start off and I look at that. I think I look at geography. Talk about talk about the ideas about uh, where good sites for for uh, naval bases are and and all related things. And then I and then I start and then I start uh, and then I start necking down towards uh, towards what navies actually do on the operational level in peacetime again and in and in wartime, which which obviously is a panoply of stuff. Which is which is actually something interesting for uh, for a junior naval officer is just to, to understand that navies do do a lot more stuff in peacetime than than say an army or an air force will because uh, it's a it's something about the, the nature of ships. The nature of ships simply suits them for for missions like that. And, I, and I, that makes it a much uh, that makes it a much more broader. I, I think it makes it a, a broader realm of strategy than to, than you run into with air or ground strategy. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's I think that's absolutely right. That's one of the things that has struck me. And um, you know, as we I talked mentioned to you before this interview, I while I'm in the Navy, an officer in the Navy Reserves now, I was prior enlisted in the Army. And one of the things I, I noticed, even and I was a linguist, and so that it's obviously entailed a lot of joint work. And one of the things I, I noticed about um, naval, and I, I would include Marines in this, uh, Marines and sailors, both uh, compared to uh, airmen and soldiers, was they always seem to be doing a lot more in peacetime than we did. Um, you know, the last 20 years, I think people kind of think of the Army and then in the Marine Corps as well for ground fighting. They don't think of the Navy as being in combat. But as you mentioned in the book, you know, one of the striking differences between the Navy and the Air Force and the Army is that there is really a strong key role for the Navy in peacetime. And beyond that, uh, there's actually a non-military role for the Navy in terms of its support of commerce. So I, I was wondering if you could just kind of discuss that. Like, what, why is the Navy important for commerce and, and what what kinds of things does it do for us aside from fighting wars? Well, I mean, well, for my hand, for my hand it's, 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 it's how we, it's, excuse me, if, Basically, he says that the the chief thing that qualifies a people, he he spends a lot of time in, in his writings trying to figure out which which societies, which uh, which countries, which societies have the right stuff to take to the sea, and as, in a sense, in a sense, he says it's it, it's a good thing to come from a resource poor country because that compels you if you want to become rich and do things in the world uh, that uh, that you deem worthwhile. It's a ha- having a resource poor country drives you to the sea. If Great Britain, for example, which he depicts as the uh, as the gold standard for sea power, which it was in his time in the late in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, Britain Britain was fairly resource poor. Britons had to they had to go to sea and trade if they wanted to become wealthy, including including to make enough money to pay for for a navy to support all, all this sort of trade. So it, it, I call it a virtuous cycle that Mahan that Mahan sees in in maritime strategy, whereby whereby in in essence. Uh, uh, you go to sea. You you you, st- you stitch together what they what what they call the supply chain, or what what he what he called the chain of sea power. Today we would call the the, the supply chain between dis- distribution at uh, home, uh, ship shipment over over the sea, and then uh, ha- having access having access to to uh, seaports on the far end, so that so that foreign customers can buy your wares to satisfy their wants and needs. This this obviously back back in Mahan's day it was a little bit different. How governments derived their revenue? They 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 derived revenue. Uh, directly from trade, 
Today it's a little bit today it's a little bit different, but nonetheless, we know that foreign commerce is is what na- makes a nation rich, and uh, and, the, and the federal government gets might and gets uh, gets that revenue stream not not so much out of tariffs and whatnot, but uh, but uh, but out of corporate income taxes and things like that. So I think that I think the basic logic that Mahan sees, uh, but in commercially driven sea power. Is is still there? Yeah. Now he he actually he, it almost feels like he turns he it almost seems like he turns our common understanding of sea power on its head. He does say he says he says you need access if you want to do all this stuff you need access to foreign to to foreign soil. But but he's he's actually very clear about what types of access and what and and what the relative importance among those types of access is. Commerce is king for him. So you need commercial access so that your firms can go overseas and, and do trade and all these wonderful things, generate that wealth. But, but And after that, you need diplomatic representation, so political representation. So you need ambassadors and so forth. But you need, a, you need that purely to facilitate commerce. And then only then, only then do you need military access, military access, military access, naval access, Enhances prospects for diplomatic representation, which in turn uh, serves commerce. So once you once you have that uh, cycle of sea power going, at that at that point, once you're generating that revenue, that actually gives you the money to pay for a navy to save, to safeguard trade. So so again, Mahan, Mahan sees a supply chain, a commercial supply chain that essentially has its own guardian in the form of a navy, and that and, and the money helps actually helps fund. The, the the naval protector for trade. So again, I, I call it a virtuous cycle, and Mahan, Mahan certainly sees it as the the, the format, foremost ta- task of statecraft for the leaders of a, of a commercially ordered and seafaring republic like the United States. So again, it's a it's it, it feels it feels like a, ch- a cycle that should be churning into the indefinite future, as long as long as you want to to remain a prosperous uh, seafaring nation. Yeah, you know, I think that's really interesting in thinking about it in in you know. Uh, practical terms, you know, we, as a soldier and, 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 and dealing with ground forces, you often hear um, things kind of represented in a negative sense, like the warfighter is about uh, lethality, is about overcoming the enemy, is about destruction, it's about, you know, winning wars, fighting battles. And so, like I said, it's kind of negative. It's a destructive goal, which, which I think is appropriate for the context that the Army operates in. It sounds like the Navy has you know, has that goal in wartime, but often has a more positive goal in terms of uh, constructing something. Um, and so I was wondering if you could, you know, what, what your thoughts about that was, and uh, as well, if you could talk a little bit more about what are some of the differences between the strategic thinking that's suited for land uh, engagements for armies and the kind of strategic thinking and planning that we really need to have when we consider maritime strategy. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right to say that. You know, yeah, I guess you could. I guess you would say that uh, navies and marine corps do have uh, do have positive fun- that sort of building function. And I, I, it's, as far as I mean, if you think about it, if you think about it, if we're doing naval diplomacy, maritime diplomacy all the time, even in peacetime, all of it's about uh, building relationships and, and preserving relationships. If we want to, if we want to, for example, I do Asia work uh, for, for predominantly. If we want to keep keep our relationship with uh, allies such as Japan. Strong. Well, we need to. We need to. We need to impress upon the Japanese on our Japanese audiences that we are a trustworthy partner. Uh, we're able to to keep over our commitments to them. Uh, we are able to to actually over, overcome our adversaries in wartime. If we if we may if, if we are able to uh, make that sort of impression on our allies, they will have confidence in us, and they and they that confidence will 
uh, lead, lead them to lead them to keep their keep out their end of the bargain. If should we get into a fight uh, with a China or a Russia or whoever the case may be, so that's a, so I would describe a lot of it as uh, as relationship building as well. And and and, obvi- and obviously there's a lot of non combat functions that actually go along with that. Uh, I mentioned humanitarian relief, uh, policing for the sea for uh, for, for a proliferation of, of guns of guns and. Uh, Weapons of mass destruction and so and so forth. So there's a lot. Of, so there is indeed a lot of uh, a lot of constabulary stuff that goes along with the the, the, the diplomatic aspects and the humanitarian aspects. Uh, as far as 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 far as what differentiates uh, uh, different different uh, types of military services and military power, I, I usually reach back to I usually reach back to uh, to Admiral Wiley, who was a, who was actually who was actually here in Newport on the on the on the War College faculty and uh, and staff. In the 1940s and 1950s, we wrote a wonderful short short book, even shorter than mine, uh, called Military Strategy. But one of one of the one of the this is actually a question that he takes on almost as an aside in that in that particular book. He says that, and he says that essentially that people who people who come to the profession of strategy from different services they think differently. They they bring different assumptions to the practice in the practice of strategy operations and tactics. For example, for example, a ground warfare uh, a ground warfare uh, person would tend to assume that you have to win a big a big land engagement before you before you can uh, actually start export, exporting the fruits of victory. Whether it's uh, taking taking charge of an enemy's an enemy's national life, as he called it, economically or whatever, and, and so on and so forth. That's a, that's different from a, that's different from an air power from an air power uh, uh, officer. Wiley, Wiley contends that that air, that air power people come to to the practice of strategy, assuming that assuming that destroying something from the air is how you control it. And he thinks that, he, he thinks that's a that's a flawed assumption, but nonetheless, it seems to be uh, sort of woven into in, into how aviation services do things. Where and of, and of course, Wiley is a naval officer. Uh, he, he actually he actually thinks that. Uh, sea services think in, think in terms of winning command of the sea. You can start you can start to, you can start applying pressure on your adversary's national life from day one, even before you have a big big naval battle and win command of the sea. So, so again, that's a that's a bit that's a bit of a different uh, a different way of of thinking. And Wiley's actually he actually undertakes this because he almost seems to despair of the, of our ability to actually have debates about joint strategy and actually and actually do do more than uh, reach the common denominator or the lowest common denominator. So he's a, so he goes through and he, and he, and he actually pauses that uh, there, there may be a, a fundamental assumption that we can all agree on that would give us a, a more fruitful ability to to negotiate on strategy. He, he pauses that it's indirection that the concept the concept going back to to uh, Sun Tzu in ancient China uh, as mediated by B. H. Littlehart in the early twentieth centuries. Never have to, never have known whether I entirely sign on to that, but I think he's certainly right that that we need to look to, to look for a. Con- Common vocabulary of strategy. If we want, to, if we want to improve the practice and the, the making of strategy among different services, that's a, that, that that is a, I would say it's it's always important. I think I would say it's increasingly important today out in the maritime and out in the maritime domain, simply because land forces and air and ground based uh, air forces can now reach far out to sea. I've, I'm not sure if I've ever talked to anybody into believing this, but I actually think that the, the the United States Army is a maritime service. The United States Air Force is a maritime service as well. Given that they're going to be doing a lot of stuff uh, in the Western Pacific, in particular, but certainly out at sea, so, so, so yeah, that's well, I mean, the army is. Uh, yeah, the army has been working on uh, some missiles and artillery pieces. I think that uh, are supposed to have some uh, some water reach, uh, if I remember correctly. Is that right? 
That's absolutely, that's absolutely true. The the Army and the Marines have been uh, – it's actually, it's actually kind of a beautiful thing to see the Army re-embrace that maritime past. I mean, so sometimes you'll, sometimes you'll get, a, get an Army officer who will remind you that uh, certainly in absolute terms – the Army did more amphibious stuff in the, in the Second World War in the Pacific than the Marines did, just because it's a much bigger service. General MacArthur commanded one of, commanded one of the, one of the major offensives uh, towards the Philippines. Very very not very nautical uh, service, and I think the Army the Army is perhaps perhaps as, as a matter of uh, institutional self preservation is actually re, uh, regaining that maritime past. But yes, yes, they've certainly set out to equip themselves with a, a variety of uh, of missile artillery. Uh, basically, for use on on Pacific Islands along the first island chain uh, that stretches from Japan uh, on south, this is this is where we think the fight that uh, may come up. And I think that and I think that and I think the Army has embraced that. The Air Force the Air Force is now doing stuff like uh, arming arming its uh, bombers with uh, sea mines, anti ship anti ship missiles of various types, and so forth. So again, the Air Force I would I would say falls into that uh, category as well. Yeah, I think I think it's funny the. Uh... One of the things I, I, I did actually know that one of the things I, I would point out when I was uh, back in my days when I was not in the Navy was that, um, you know, uh, there was the biggest, uh, biggest uh, amphibious operation in hi- history was uh, there were no Marines involved in it. And I actually I think maybe this is an army army propaganda, but I was always was always told that there were no landings in the South Pacific that uh, did not involve at least one soldier. So <laughs> so and, and, and I. And, and I think that it's interesting, too. There's a, an article in the proceedings. Uh, I was just reading it last night discussing, uh, you know, it's the same same issue that your your uh, your essay appears in um, discussing uh, advanced base operations in the early 20th century. And one thing, something that struck me there was uh, a sentence there uh, said in a testament to joint integration, two Marine officers were sent to the Army School for Submarine Defenses at Fort Monroe, Virginia, which uh, was news to me. I assume that School must have closed down a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I think it must have. You know, it's actually there's there's really a lot of value. I mean, obviously history history is a is an invaluable uh, wellspring of uh, insight and ideas. But uh, really, a century ago, I think that that inter, that interwar era, I think, is, is is especially fascinating because of all the intellectual ferment that went on in the navy and and our and our and our sister services with regard to war with Japan or, or whatever the next big thing would be. But yeah, but yeah, certainly 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 the. In fact, I would. Uh, in, in fact, I would describe the Marines certainly, and that certainly at that time, as the most intellectual of the services. They they really they really set out to learn the le- the lessons and codify the lessons that they learned from the Banana Wars from the uh, in the twenties and thirties from the Philippine War at the turn of the century. All of these all, all of these things that were they they all fit into Marine doctrine. The Marines published a wonderful book in nineteen uh, in nineteen thirty five called the Small Wars Manual, which is still in print today. And I think I still I think still informs how we do counterinsurgency in the maritime domain. So, so yeah, there's certainly a lot, certainly a lot of a lot of a lot of grist for for learning about strategy today by looking looking in the rearview mirror. And I think that's a particularly fruitful era. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think it's pretty incredible. And I also think you know we were talking a little bit before the interview about groupthink in, in in the DoD in general. And I think one of the things that was interesting then I, I remember I can't remember where I read this or maybe it was an interview discussing some of the differences between interwar, the interwar period and officer formation and career paths and the ones today. And, you know, I, I think it's kind of funny. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of positive reinforcement for education, that kind of thing today, which is good. You know, I, I definitely don't not, not saying that's negative. But, you know, what, one of the theories I heard for the reason why you had so many officers with unusual careers, I mean, you can think it's still well. For example, you know, a four-star general who spent a lot of time in China as a diplomat, 
yep. um, early in his career, which would be impossible for, I think, someone to reach that rank today and have spent that amount of time um, not in, you know, the command track. And so, you know, I, I heard one of the arguments for, for that was actually that it was such a backwater professionally uh, that people kind of did whatever the hell they wanted because they were probably going to retire as a major. Yeah, yeah, promotions were certainly uh, slow, slow as uh, slow as molasses in the interwar era. So, yeah, I, I would say that's I would say that's probably a, a reasonable. T- you know, it's actually it's actually kind of interesting to look back at some of the greats of uh, of, Na- of the U.S. Navy and uh, and see how many of those people. And I think this is a related phenomenon. A lot of, some of those some of those people went to to uh, d- different communities, if not all the all of, all the communities between the subsurface and the service community, and of course the aviation community. Admiral Admiral uh, Nimitz started off less started off life as a submariner, and of course ended up being a, sur- a surface sailor before he rose to uh, to flag rank. Uh, Admiral King, who was our CNO during the Second World War, actually actually got his uh, actually got his aviator's wings uh, very late in life, as did uh, as did Halsey, I think. So yeah there's there was definitely there was we definitely were not nearly as stratified as we are today it would almost be unthinkable to do that kind of thing today yeah it's 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 really it's it's really hard to imagine um so you know along with that think about things that are hard to imagine and and then drawing from the past you know another thing that I, I have long thought about um especially you know in my transition from ground forces to naval forces is you know what so many people think of naval threats as past, you know, as something that hasn't happened or that, that that's not going to happen, basically. You know, I think it's kind of an end of history thing. And they have a hard time as a result conceptualizing, one, what naval warfare will look like. And, and that's a tactical question, which, you know, feel free to answer. But also on the strategic level, like what what would the world be like without an American Navy? You know, I mean, I think people assume that if the Navy weren't there, things would kind of keep going because pirate ships are maybe there's a couple of Somalis and a skiff somewhere in the, you know, in the uh, Red Sea, but there's, there's certainly no one around now that's going to be doing real piracy. So, so what would the world be like without an American Navy? What does the American Navy do for us in, in those terms? Yeah, I think you're, I mean, you're right to call you're right to call attention to the, to the constabulary tasks, uh, piracy, obviously it's like, it's like, it's actually on the decline in the, in the Western Indian ocean, but it's actually, it's actually uh, making a, it's like, I'm not, I don't have a clear sense of how bad it is, but certainly the Gulf of Guinea has a has a piracy problem as well in, in the South Atlantic. So it's, it never really it never really goes away. In fact, if you if you read if well, Thucydides and his history of the Peloponnesian War starts off by uh, reviewing so uh, farther back into Greek history, he he actually contends that the first Greek navy was actually founded to 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 combat piracy uh, in the in the dim mists of time. So. So, so again, navy, navy, navies have that sort of constabulary function. If you did not have, if we did not maintain a, a navy here in the United States, uh, well, that's a that would that would be a really uh, hard thing to envision. But I, I would I would just I would assume that that we, we would see that we would cede that part of the that part of the international system to somebody who to somebody who did who did actually invest in the navy, whether it's uh, whether it's the European Union, whether it's China, obviously has put has put a lot of resources into its navy over the last quarter century, and so forth. So yeah, you well, the Chinese be, shipbuilding rates are pretty incredible over the last few years. As I, yeah, they they certainly are. In fact, in fact, uh, in fact, I find their buildup uh, rather rather impressive. It's it, it, well, it's sort of beyond beyond rather impressive. It's extremely impressive what they managed to do. They they essentially started from from almost zero in the mid nineteen nineties, resolved to build resolved to build build the navy, uh, and a quarter century later have actually have actually made it happen. Now, not not to make this a China a China talk, but uh, 
one thing, one thing for one thing for readers to think about is uh, yes, yes, the Chinese Navy. When you see pictures of their ships, they actually look a lot like ours. They look extremely impressive and, and well kept and so forth. But they are, but in a sense, they're black boxes. In, the, in that we can't really peek, peek inside that we can see the outward appearance of, the, of, of China's Navy, but we don't really know whether they've actually staged a leap to parity with us technologically uh, or whether they're a generation behind or, or perhaps even more. That, that, that actually makes a big dif- difference in who is the stronger force. The Soviet Navy was always, uh, always much more numerous than we were, uh, certainly by the 1970s and 80s. But at the same time, nobody would have said the Soviet Navy was the superior combat force. So that's a so that's a, that's a way to think about naval power is that don't don't get too don't get too obsessed with the bean counting aspects of, of it. But uh, but I, but I, but actually ask the harder questions about who is actually stronger than whom. So that's a and. Uh, Let's see. Yeah. Could you go back? We, we, I think we, I went off on a tangent there. We, we talk, started talking about. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, I remember that. We were going to we were going to talk about uh, why we were so hard to envision what naval warfare would look like today. It, it, you know, part of it's because it, part of it is because you mentioned the end of history. I, I literally saw that. I literally saw the United States Navy tell us tell itself that the end of history had arrived in 1992. Strangely enough, the year that uh, Frank Fukuyama published his famous book, The End of History. The Navy and the Marine Corps essentially said naval history had ended. That was the that was the year when they they issued their first effort at uh, post Cold War strategy, a document called "From the Sea," and in the preamble to in the preamble to that document, it, it specifically says we own the sea. The Soviet Navy is gone. There's nobody else to challenge us for command of the sea, and therefore we can restructure ourselves as a fundamentally different naval service. Essentially, essentially a service that does not have to fight for for maritime command because nobody will challenge it. That's a, you know, that's a, that actually made sense for a while in the 1990s because the, the Soviet Navy was gone. Russia was in turmoil. Turmoil. China had not yet uh, set on, on its naval buildup. But at the same time, at the same time, if you if you tell yourself that your that that your primary mission, fighting for command of the sea, is is no more, well, what do you do? The Navy essentially the, the Navy essentially stopped doing doing more than perfunctory efforts to keep up its uh, its proficiency at surface warfare anti-air warfare all the things you have to do to fight a, to, to fight a peer navy and if you do that for long enough then it t- you, you almost have a hangover it's really hard to get back into it and get back into a rhythm and start and start thinking in battle-minded terms and that's kind of that's kind of where we are right now I think we're still getting over that end of history thinking and I think I think we I think we've uh, have have lagged in, in up until recent years just because uh, just because we spent so much time assuming that we owned the sea and that we would never have to fight for command of it. I mean, I mean, it's it's really simple things. Like, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned missiles. We we used to have a tomahawk a tomahawk anti ship missile when I was when I was on sea duty, uh, which has been a while back now. We we actually dismantled that the inventory of anti, tomahawk anti ship missiles and left ourselves with no long range anti ship missile. Uh, something that's at a premium in naval warfare today. We're having to know. We're now having to try to reinvent that uh, maritime strike tomahawk. It's actually, it's, it is actually happening. I mean, that's that's the good news is some, some of these things are coming to fruition. But we got we got a very late start as we saw as we saw China start to make itself a, a contender of note as Ro- as Russia, the Russian Navy started to get its mojo back and so forth. So. So again, very, very, very dangerous ever to t- ever to tell yourself, and especially to instruct the service that your primary mission is no more, and that you, it, that you can stop preparing for it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's an interesting point. We've been in kind of a weird situation for the last thirty years. I think you know, there's traditionally a dichotomy drawn in in, in 
historical military history and strategic terms between land powers and and sea powers. And you know, I I think we uh, in many ways the United States and it has been in the past. You know, the first real military force that we built up was the Navy, um, and for a variety of reasons, including you know security ones. The argument in the early Republic was often that a Navy was better for Republic to have than the army because the Navy couldn't go beyond the shores and attack its own people. Um, and so we first built up the Navy. We had, you know, huge maritime industry uh, for a long time. And then in the last 30 years, I think we've kind of forgotten about um, almost, I mean, air, with air power and the kind of transit that we have. And I think people forget how much we relied on the sea to, to actually move material over to the Middle East. But we kind of look at the sea, I think, as a place that we skip over in order to perform military operations, uh, which, again, like I said, is interesting compared to our history. So one of the things I'd like to ask you, Professor Holmes, is um, are, is the United States a land power or a sea power? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's, it, I'm not sure there's actually a, a fixed answer to it, but it, it is a debate that's, a, that's ongoing. Mahan, Mahan c- contends that you can... You can a nation can be both, but not for very long. He he doesn't think he doesn't think that any nation could uh, uh, could stand up to the rigors of funding funding great sea power and great land power at the same time. I think that it would be interesting to if we could uh, if we could conjure him up today and ask him what he thinks about the United States today because I think I think I think we certainly really qualify as both. But I mean, but in a sense, that's a, it's it's a historical accident and an accident of geography. Where we often so we oftentimes say the United States can be a land power because it has a weak neighbor to the north, weak neighbor to the south, and also friendly neighbors, uh, water to the left, water to the right. So in a, so in a sense, in a sense, we don't have we don't don't have those those burdens that go along with being a land power uh, as China as China does obviously with with lots of neighbors as Russia does as as most as most nations do that have. Uh, that live in a tougher neighborhood than we do. So, so in a sense, the United States can can have it both ways. I think that I think if you look at if you consider China, uh, if you consider China, we we oftentimes describe it as a hybrid land sea power, uh, just just because of the geography uh, sitting at, sitting in the rimlands of East Asia, bordering India, border bordering a lot of nations with uh, some with very formidable militaries and, and some of the nuclear armed as well. So China, so in a, so in a sense, China has it a lot tougher than we do as it tries to go out to sea. China also China also has uh, has a geographic problem simply simply because as it tries to go to sea simply because it has it, the the first island chain that runs parallel to the coast more or less uh, is all is all inhabited by U.S. friends and allies. So essentially, so essentially, China has, China faces a lot more difficult difficult problem than the United States does trying to get out to sea. We can we can think about access to foreign coasts. We don't have to worry about getting out to sea uh, coming out of Norfolk, Virginia, or uh, or, or San Diego or wherever. China has to worry about access uh, for, from the time a ship casts off lines in uh, Shanghai or whatever seaport uh, you pick, getting even just getting out of the, into the Pacific Ocean, into the Western Pacific Ocean. So, and they, so, so, so there's, there's, there's sort of two hybrid land sea powers as well. I guess the, I guess the, I guess probably the quintessential land power would be Russia, but, but at the same time, I think that's, that's probably changing as well. Uh, or at least potentially changing with, with climate change, making those waters along uh, Russia's uh, northern periphery accessible, and thus uh, and thus thus letting Russia carry on commerce uh, at sea and also do naval stuff at sea as well. So I'm not a big I'm not a big believer in that uh, that uh, sharp dichotomy between land powers and sea powers. I think I do I do think most nations are more or less uh, hybrids of one or the other. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's an interesting point. Yeah, and I, I I would kind of be inclined to agree with that. Um, but you know, 
one of the things that enables either maritime prowess uh, alone or, or kind of the joint um, aspect is something you cover in the book, which is uh, a culture or a, a spirit um, that, you know, lends itself to going towards the sea. And, you know, I, I think, um, and again, this has changed, not necessarily just as a result of the Navy, but also as a result of technology. Uh, you know, um, in the past, you could think of ports, port cities like Boston, um, Savannah, uh, where I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, um, you know, that not that Jacksonville, Florida really was a port back in the day, but it is a port now, um, you know, and, and old ports had the port was really integrated into the city itself, like Newport, for example, you know, most of uh, Newport is situated right along what used to be a busy uh, merchant port. Nowadays, um, you know, these ports are often removed from cities. Uh, no longer are shipping concerns really family uh, businesses. They're often, you know, corporations that people don't really necessarily have a direct connection to. Um, when you ship goods overseas, you don't really need to go talk to any of the shippers themselves. You can kind of do freight contracts at arm's length. Um, so I, I was wondering, you know, what impact does this have on maritime culture, uh, both in general and in the United States? Is, maritime culture the same that it is now as it was yesterday? Um, and does the U.S. maintain the same kind of maritime culture that it once had? Yeah, I think the, I think the answer is, yeah, I would be, I, I would be prepared to say no. I, I, I actually don't, don't think it is. It's a, it, the seawater actually runs through our veins in the way it did maybe a century ago or certainly after the Second World War. I mean, a, this is, a, I mean, this is, a, again, Mahan, Mahan talks about maritime culture. I mean, he, he talks about, he talks about uh, all these, all these tenants that make an, that qualify a nation to go to sea. And one of them, one of them is, uh, he calls it the character of the people. Does it, I mean, it's, as you point as you point out, uh, it, it, the sea feels rather remote. Even even right here, I live about, I live about less than a mile from the water. I, I go walk along the Narragansett Bay just about every day. But it, but again again, it does feel rather impersonal. Ships come up to the to the uh, port of Providence, right past the ha- right past the house, more or less. They they more, they more at, the, at various piers. You never you never see you never see sailors out in town. They just basically stay on the ship. And so so again, they, so again, there's not that sort of mingling that uh, that sort of mingling that uh, that spreads sea. Culture and it also allows for cultural interaction with uh, with with sailors who actually actually crew those ships. So I think that I think it is I think it actually is a problem. But I mean, but if it's a problem on the coast, if it's a problem here in Newport, Rhode Island, or in uh, or like you said in Jacksonville, places like places like that. Think I think think about it in the deep deep end of the heartland of the country. Think about to, I was in uh, I was out to uh, Kansas City to the to the National World War One Museum to give a talk on the on the armistice a couple of years ago. Loved Kansas City. I thought it was a great town, but I, it really it really made me feel uneasy to be that far from the ocean. Yes, you have the Missouri River and, and that and so forth, which is nice. But wow, I mean, think, I mean, how how much maritime consciousness is there going to be for somebody deep 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 in the heartland who who never even sees the who never even sees the ocean, uh, and who doesn't really have uh, much relationship to it i mean it's it's i think i think if you ask a person like that is a navy important they would probably say yes but they're not going to really feel it in their guts so i think that and i, and I think that's a real problem so just just being the size of the united states and having so many so many different regions many of them far from the sea i think is actually it, it actually makes it a tough sell uh is as far as con- continuing a maritime culture china 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 is another thing because they have a very very single-minded leadership that is very very targeted on the sea 
and it's a, and obviously it's an authoritarian society that's able to that's able to uh, put 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 matters in front of the people and insist that they take note. We don't really have we don't really have that, and I, I think that's a dangerous thing. I will say this: not just the United States, though. Even 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 Australia, even even Great Britain itself, once once the the gold standard for sea power. Uh, leadership leadership there oftentimes complains about what they call sea blindness, basically relying on the sea, re- relying on the sea with actually without actually taking it seriously that you need to do things, field the navy to to to, to, to uh, take care of the sea and make sure that that maritime hi- highway is always open. So 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 I guess the short answer: No, I don't think we have the same maritime culture. What's the what's the uh, what's the response? I mean, how do we do it better? I think that I think that's kind of where the debate is, and I'm not I'm not entirely sure that I know the answer either. Yeah, and and what you know, so and what 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 impacts has have has this uh, decline in the maritime spirit had um, on our naval forces in general? You know, I mean, you mentioned some some concerns about you know lack of government support, lack of popular support in the imagination, but you know. Um, how have we seen that manifest itself in the actual naval forces of this country? Uh, well, you know, I, I guess it's, I mean, you could sort of come at it from, from the governmental angle. I mean, it's, it's certainly you, you don't have all, all that many uh, Navy veterans in Congress anymore. That makes it a, that makes it a little more difficult to reach out to lawmakers and, and convince them that uh, that what we are asking for in budgets and for and fleet design plans, all these sorts of things are actually are actually important. That's a that's a that's a point that Admiral Wiley uh, makes in his book uh, in, in a different discussion from uh, when he was talking about the Air Force culture and so forth. He he actually points out he says, look, you you military people, you naval people, when you go to talk to lawmakers, you had better not use a lot of jargon. I mean, don't don't use this insider language because it, because in effect you will be keeping secrets from them, keeping secrets from people who make strategic decisions through the budgetary process all the time. So it, as, as, as you can as you can imagine, as you have fewer and fewer John McCain's in Congress or or, or other Navy veterans in Congress, that pro- that prospect for uh, for Congress for Congress people not not to get what you're talking to them about is is, is even is even more so. So I think so. I think that that would be certainly uh, one problem. One one problem, obviously, popular support for the Navy. People people will tend to. Uh, uh, people will tend to uh, put uh, social program, you know, put their favorite social programs or whatever their domestic priorities are. Over, over, overfunding a navy that's able to actually go out to sea and win command of the sea, and that's it makes perfect sense. I mean, what, what do you do every day? You go to work, you, you try to make a living for your family, you hope for security and so forth. See, these are the things that are going to uh, they're going to they're going to rank higher on your personal priority. Then so, something that feels kind of it's a, it's obviously out of sight for the unless you live in a, in, a, in a vibrant naval port and and you assume that that it's always there that it's always there. Common common talking point for for Navy leaders is that uh, the Navy is so the Navy is sort of like oxygen. You don't notice it until you don't have it, and at that point, you really need it badly. Yeah, and you know, I, I think uh, you know, I, I think there's also a broader strategic consequence, which you know, we, we, I know is uh, often written about in among naval thinkers today. That I'd love for you to elaborate on it. Which is, you know, its effect on commerce. You know, the decline in um, in merchant shipping, and not just merchant shipping, but civilian ship capacity. Is that something, uh, you know, in terms of uh, fewer merchant mariners, fewer American flag vessels, this, that, and the other? I mean, is that part of a, a naval maritime concern? And how do strategists, or how should strategists, think about uh, merchant shipping and uh, potentially America's lack thereof? 
Yeah, it's a it's a real problem of, in, in a lot of ways. I, I would say I would say the sort of the immediate thing is yes, we have to, we we need merchant we need merchant seafaring. I mean, it's we we need we need demographically speaking, we need a vibrant maritime community. So so people who are skilled in shipbuilding. Uh, obviously, who who actually go out and then drive ships around and, and carry goods that carry goods overseas, do all these do all these things that commercial seafaring involves. If you don't have if you don't have that, I mean, there, there there's going to be there's going to be a, a carryover effect on your ability to to build and maintain a navy and operate that navy uh, operate that navy proficiently. So so in a sense, in a sense, that sort of demographic decline of that of that of that community in the United States is a real problem. The more immediate operational uh, problem is that uh, simply we. If we if we if we need to, we'll be off, we always say the Navy only uh, plays away games. We 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 fight in uh, off the uh, off the off the rimlands of East Asia or Western Europe, whatever the case may be. Perhaps even in South Asia today, and it, it takes a lot of shipping to it takes a lot of shipping to get stuff and people to theater, theaters of conflict. We it's it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to get a, a firm number on the numbers of uh, on the numbers of merchant uh, marine hulls that we actually have available to us to, to to carry war material and people. But it it appears to me it appears to me that we have fewer ships that are actually available for sea for sea left today than were damaged or sunk during the the the, uh, the, the first year of World War II out in the Atlantic in nineteen in nineteen forty two. So if you so if you if you if you assume that a China or a Russia or some other adversary is going to try to obstruct our ability to get material into the theater, and that's exactly what they will do, then I think I think we have to we have to expect expect that we will suffer casualties, and we we really need to bud to bulk up that merchant fleet, or else we we simply won't be able to get it done if we get in the scrap in in, in a faraway theater like Asia or or Europe. So so it's sort of the cultural aspect, and then the operational aspects, and and both I think we're wanting. Yeah, and I, and I think it's, uh, that, that's a wonderful illustration of your discussion about the virtuous circle or cycle, um, you know, uh, the other side of it. You know, on the one hand, people like Mahan were really thinking about how the Navy in, 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 uh, uh, pushes forward commerce and supports commerce. But, you know, the flip side of it is with the maritime spirit, commerce really inculcates that maritime spirit and lets people know why they should care about the Navy. You know, and causes more naval veterans to be in public places and, you know, advertises what the Navy really does for them. And so it's kind of a deflationary cycle almost um, in terms of the decrease of merchant shipping. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, I think this is actually we were talking about the end of history a little while ago. I think that I think this is actually a related phenomenon, and this is a non-strictly naval thing. I think American society actually succumbed to that sort of end of, end of history th- thinking as well. In fact, I started studying international relations as I mentioned in the early 1990s, right after the Cold War. And I remember when I started going to classes, uh, going into classes, and people would say, "Yeah, geography doesn't matter. Force doesn't matter. Everything is commerce today." I think that I, don't, I think that the United States, I think I think Americans were not especially geographic thinkers in general, but the, but and and I think we actually made it much worse. If you, you would have a very distinguished scholars saying that, hey, it's a globalized age, ge- geography no no longer matters, and, it, and geography obviously includes the sea, which covers most of the globe as well. So I think we've I think we've as a society as well as as a navy, I think we're actually making a return to history. You don't find people saying that kind of thing anymore, but that was really in the air. Uh, I would say, I would say, certainly up until the turn of the century, and, I, and probably, probably far left, far after that. I remember, I remember having a back, back and forths in print uh, 
with uh, again with with pretty distinguished people about whether geography matters. It's obvious to military and naval people that it does, but if they, but uh, but it's it's kind of easy for people who do not go out and serve serve in the armed forces. It's kind of easy to say that kind of stuff. And there's actually and there's actually political and strategic implications to that sort of blind spot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's that famous uh, what is it, it was a uh, uh, article uh, the ge- geographical importance of power. I mean, it was the turn of the 20th century, right? It was 1890s, 19. 19- yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, just in case anybody uh, is not fully convinced, what are what is the importance of uh, geography in terms of both maritime strategy and otherwise? Well, I mean, it, you know, uh, President Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, he 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 started off his uh, fireside chats during World War II by, by by asking Americans to take out their atlas. He would always say, "Look at your map," especially in his famous uh, fireside chat on Washington's birthday. Uh, in 1942, which of course, which of course, it will be, uh, I guess, uh, we're, we are commemorating tomorrow. So, uh, and in the and he actually he actually believed he fervently believed that looking at the map is the way is the way to gain to gain wisdom and strategy. He would he would he would essentially ask Americans to look, and he would he would show how we were going to try to, or he would show the danger of the of the Axis actually uh, actually potentially encircling the United States uh, from from uh, from Europe and Asia. And he, and he would basically just, in, in very simple terms, put it to them. He was he was probably the most geographically minded president uh, that I know that I know of. Theodore Roosevelt, I guess, would 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 fall into that category as well. But but yeah, so so there are big figures who testified in the importance of geography. But I mean, again, so just just pull out your, I mean, get out your globe and look at look at the globe and think about how hard it is to try to wage war in China's backyard, where China has all the advantages that could that go to the home team. Especially if you have to cross uh, sixty five hundred miles of water, that and and probably fa- and probably face opposition even as you go when you leave Honolulu or when you leave uh, San Diego, you're gonna you're gonna face opposition from China's military long before long before you get to the to the combat zone, whether it's uh, the Taiwan Strait or so. Think I, I mean think about how hard it is for us to go and preserve Taiwan's ind- uh, independence in the Taiwan Strait, only only about ninety miles from chi- from mainland China. That right, that, that right there shows exactly how difficult this uh, this 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 uh, practice of strategy, force design, all of these things are. So, well, and I, yeah, and I think I think you're mentioning Taiwan there is a is a perfect uh, a perfect example of uh, something that we you started talking about earlier too. Is you know, and with China, it cuts both ways. I think uh, not to excuse excuse China's actions in the South China Sea, but it, I think it becomes a lot more reasonable when you. As you mentioned, you look around and you see how hemmed in they are uh, by our allies, by powers that are not necessarily friendly to China, and that in some cases like Vietnam are becoming potentially less friendly to China as time goes on. Uh, you can really understand, I think, from a geographic perspective, why they want to push out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at, again, going back to looking at the map, the first island chain, there is no Chinese sea, seaport that outflanks the first island chain. If, and, and that's one of, that's one reason that all the, all the way back to the Cold War, but I think you're seeing a renewal of this uh, this idea that we, that we can use the island chain, use military forces on the island chain to apply commercial and military pressure on China. And obviously, China is very is, is very cognizant of that. It's it, first island chain stares them in the face every time every every day when they get up when they get up in the morning and look eastward out to, out to, out to sea. So, I think I mean I don't think you need to have sympathy with our potential enemies. Let alone with anybody else, but you certainly do have to have a measure of empathy. Try to try to see the world the way that they do, and that helps you get some uh, some glimpse of what what they might do, 
uh, in the future to try to, to try to beat this strategy. So this next question will be one of our last. Uh, um, it might be uh, might be an unfair one because it is outside of your uh, realm of expertise, but it, it kind of came to my mind while you were talking. You know, uh, I certainly remember, and I, I assume you probably were of this uh, inclination when you were a much younger person. Um, you know, being a, a, I wouldn't even say young man, a boy, and pulling out. I don't know whether it was the encyclopedia or an actual atlas or just maps and looking at maps and kind of thinking about. You know, just not even thinking seriously about places, but, you know, just kind of, you know, like, oh, I, I wonder what that place is like, and, you know, just kind of looking at where things are. And I, you know, with the Internet now and the way we access maps, and I'd be, I'd be curious to know how many people actually do that. I, I bet you a lot of a lot of people don't. Do you think that that has any impact on some of these issues of strategy and conceptions, geography, the fact that when we do interact with maps, it's not often... Um, by looking at a whole map and trying to find your way through the map and locating yourself in a broader perspective, but it's more like plugging coordinates into a GPS or addresses and just getting out, uh, getting directions and not really seeing or reading a news article and just kind of seeing here's the city and not seeing the context. Do you think that has any impact on uh, the way we conceptualize these problems today? Yeah, I think I think I think you're onto something. I mean, it's it's, it's very. I mean, I, I could call up uh, Google Earth on my laptop in about thirty seconds. It's right on my uh, desktop. So uh, so obviously we we do have a lot of cartographic uh, information right in front of us. So you, I mean, it's it's great. You can measure distances and whatnot uh, right there right there on your desktop. But I think I think it might be perhaps even a deeper issue than that. I, I don't know about you, and I'm just spitballing here at this point. But uh, I certainly find I certainly find that reading a physical book is very different. I, I read on the Kindle as well, and, and obviously read the internet and all that all that kind of stuff. I don't find it to be the same thing, and I actually don't. I actually don't. It doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like it really stays with me the same way. Picking up picking up a, a physical book, an atlas in this case, if we're talking about talking about geography and just sitting there and studying, I think that psychologically, I think there's actually I think there's actually uh, I think it's actually it registers with you more. I don't, I don't, I don't even know how exactly to say it, but I've, I've noticed this over the years. If I, if, if, if I'm studying a book, if I, if I want to put it in my intellectual capital for the future, I always get the physical book. If I, if it's just for entertainment, I do Kindle or so, or, or whatever, just because you don't really care about it. But, but yeah, I think, I think there, I do think, I do think that there's sort of a staying power to, to physical products, including Alice's that, uh, uh, that helps you, that helps you really feel it in your guts. Geogra- geographic relationships to one another. Nicholas Spikeman, by the way, if anybody if anybody really wants to study uh, to study geography, I, 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 you could not do better than go to his books from during the World War II era, the geography of the peace, and also America's strategy in world politics. He he draw he draws a lot of these geographic relationships out. He also he also says you just have to remind yourself once in a while you need you need to go and look at the globe once in a while just to to refresh basic geographic concepts uh, in your mind. For example, and he gives he gives the example of the, of the fact that uh, the vast majority of, of South America lies east of Washington D.C. I, I certainly have a very vertical a very vertical understanding of Western Hemisphere geography, and that just doesn't make a, a darn bit of sense to me. But it's actually true. So if you if you go to if you go to Rio de Janeiro, which I did, which I had the good fortune to do a couple of years ago, you actually go forward. You actually go forward in time or uh, in time zones, and not and not and not just uh, uh, stay in the same time zone. So kind of fascinating. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, another one of those little factoids that, that is that is interesting. I mean, this you don't necessarily get from an atlas, but 
you know, London is several hundred miles closer to New York City than New York City is to L.A., you know, which is uh, also something that I, you know, when you talk about things like the Two Coast Navy, uh, which we don't unfortunately have enough time to get into, um, uh, but, you know, make, is, it has interesting consequences for that, I think. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, yeah, I guess we are starting to wind down on time. But uh, yeah, the Spike, I mean, Spikeman points out, and he's trying, again, he's trying to impress upon us the, the importance of geography. And yeah, he contended that when the, when the Panama Canal opened in 1914, 1915, he, he, points out, he points out that in a sense, in a commercial sense, that, actually, that it was not only a game changer for the Navy, letting us sw- swing fleets back and forth between the Atlantic and the, and the Pacific much more easily, but also from a, from a commercial standpoint, all of a sudden, New York City, our dominant seaport at the time, is closer to Shanghai or to, or to North China rather than Liverpool, the major British trade trading port, and, and obviously New York's major major competitor. So, in a sense, digging that in a sense digging that canal teleported, teleported New York to New York City by steaming miles far 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 closer to East Asia, which, which was thought to be fantastically uh, wealthy and a great place and a great place to trade. So, and he, he points out there was a cultural impact to that as well. The United States, because of our, of our heritage, has always looked towards Europe. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, the canal, the canal has transformed the Caribbean into a maritime highway. All of a sudden, Americans are also looking south and thence towards the Pacific to the, to the west. So, again, ge- to changing, ge- changing geography is obviously a big deal as well. Suez Canal, same deal. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so like I said, unfortunately, we, we are running out of time. So I, I guess my last question to you, Professor Holmes, would be if uh, you were... I, I won't even say chief of naval operations. Who became the secretary of the Navy? Uh, Joe Biden's new secretary of the Navy. What are some of the uh, initiatives that you would do to either ensure that people are more aware of maritime strategy or to uh, shore up our position, um, you know, uh, vis-a-vis the maritime domain? Yeah, I mean, just, well, I mean, I, I guess in, I'm not going to become Secretary of the Navy. Nobody's nobody's asked. So, so, uh, in, in fact, you, you don't want me to try to run the Navy. I haven't, I haven't run anything big in, in a very long time. So, but is but we are actually. You mentioned the proceedings, the current issue of Na- the Naval Institute proceedings. We're actually, we're actually making an attempt to, to get the to get the word out, certainly within the services, and to help the, to help uh, service people, Marines, and, Marines, and Naval officers, and enlisted. Uh, to help them become good spokesmen for the Navy, and in, in, in hopes that uh, that the word will seep out, seep out as they interact with their fellow fellow citizens uh, out in town uh, on deployment or whatever. So we're doing something called the the American Sea Power Project, which is an effort to carry on a, a year long conversation in print about the importance of a, of a great Navy. We have a, we have a pretty good lineup of people uh, uh, whom you've heard of who are going to weigh in. But I, th- I think that's uh, and I think that's going I think that's going to be helpful. Personally, I, I think that's. I think it needs to be. We need to make an effort to get sea power back into the into the popular culture. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's what, where you could possibly really have an impact. I would say. I would. I would think we, we. There certainly books about the Second World War in the Pacific sell like hotcakes. You know, you have Ian Toll, you have James Hornfish. These guys are great storytellers. We need story, We need people who are great storytellers to help get the word out. But I, I would actually take it even farther than that, and, and try to get and try to get fiction writers in on it. I mean, think of, think about the impact that C.S. Forrester had on public opinion in Great Britain during the during the Second World War, simply because he was a gifted storyteller. People people in Britain loved a, a good story about the sea, and I, so if, it, if you have a Joseph Conrad, if we had if we had if we had great fiction writers uh, out there out there and out there in the public today, who could actually who could actually who could actually just get that back into the zeitgeist? I think that I think that would actually help people 
uh, it would it would actually help them think about the Navy. If, you know, if people think about the Navy, the chances are they're going to reach uh, conclusions that uh, that are acceptable and and, and provide their support uh, to this to this vital effort that that we're that we're embarked upon. That's great, sparking the imagination. I like it. Yeah, I think absolutely. that's a, yeah, that's absolutely. a good a good spot to end on. And so, just what I'd like to say, uh, we mentioned uh, the proceedings a couple of times in this interview. For people who may not know, uh, the proceedings is the uh, it's a, a monthly uh, magazine journal that is put out by the U.S. Naval Institute, which is uh, run out of, I think, uh, Baltimore. Um, and uh, it is a kind of gold standard uh, for all maritime services, U.S. Coast Guard, Marine Corps, U.S. Navy, uh, many other services, members of the other services read it regularly. If you are interested, uh, it is not too expensive and uh, you should uh, keep track of what's going on. Uh, you can just join up. Anyone can join the U.S. Naval Institute. All right, yeah, so uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say it's actually in Annapolis. So it, 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 it actually, it actually, the, the building actually faces the U.S. Naval Academy. They actually, they actually run a good scholarly press as well, which is where my where I, uh, I uh, publish most of my books. And as a uh, small tidbit of information uh, or a trivia, I guess they were uh, the press that first published uh, Hunt for Red October. So Tom Clancy's inaugural publisher was uh, USNI. Yeah, I don't think he could. Find, I don't think Tom could find a publisher, and they so they so they did it, and they and they just made money hand over fist. Yeah, that was that was really a great a great get for them. Strangely, strangely, my, my very last time out at sea before uh, coming out to, coming to shore duty, got a Clancy actually came and wreck came and uh, rode on board, so it was, was kind of neat to meet him. He was he was kind of a fascinating guy because he wanted to hang out with the when the enlisted people, so he he hung out in the chief's mess and places like that, and uh, and he, he kept us officers uh, more or less at arm's length. But yeah, he was a good dude. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. All right, Professor Holmes. Well, I really certainly enjoyed the chat. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully uh, next time you publish a book, uh, we will be able to invite you over and uh, continue our conversation. Yeah, I've got, got another one coming later this year. Oh, what's it about? Uh, you know, I've always wanted to write a little bit of philosophy, so, so it's I, I call it the habits of the habits of modern, or excuse me, habits of highly effective maritime strategists. I start all the way with Aristotle and, and and spend a lot of time with the philosophers, but basically make the make the case that strategy is a family of habits that we should all groom ourselves with in order in order to excel at the practice of strategy. Oh, fantastic! Well, I look forward to reading it. All right, thank you, Professor Holmes, and uh, thank you for joining us today for. Uh, the new uh, a new book on the new books network